Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to Revelation 14. Revelation 14. We're going to work our way through this chapter this morning. As you're finding your place there, I want to welcome all those who are joining us via our live stream this morning. We're grateful that you're joining us in Reach Church DeSoto and uh, the venue service right down the hall. We're grateful for all of you that are joining us today. I also want to invite Scott Johns to come up here and join me on the stage. This is a special day. It's a day of celebration for us. Um, Scott Johns is a man who's been serving here, helping us in so many ways, and we've gotten to know him, see his heart for the Lord, uh, his service to Christ, and his call to go to the nations. And, uh, and today we get to pray over him and commission him as he goes out. So this is uh, a day of celebration, but I wanted you to hear from Scott. So Scott, you, you share with them uh, who you are, where you're headed, and how we can pray for you. Yeah, like Pastor Chad said, my name is Scott Johns, and I'm on staff with a college campus ministry called Campus Outreach. I'll be serving in Brisbane, Australia at the University of Queensland, meeting the university students there. Campus Outreach's mission statement is glorifying God by building laborers on the college campus for the lost world. And I get really excited about that because six years ago, I was a freshman at K-State down the road, and I had a friend that initiated towards me and was willing to stand in the gap and share the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ with me when I wasn't following Christ. I got to hear about uh, that I could have eternity with God and that I could change what I was living for and have joy and fulfillment. And so I get excited about the opportunity to say yes to God and to go overseas and see what God could do through me with the university students of Australia. With that, there's a couple things you can be praying for for me. Um, So one of the things that's big is we're waiting on a couple visas for me and my teammates. We've been waiting for a long time. We were supposed to leave last January. Um, It's this February, if you didn't know. Um, So it's been quite a long time. Um, But the Australian government is changing a lot of stuff, so you could join me in praying that we'd get our visas quickly and be able to leave soon as students are back on campus. Another thing you can be praying for is in this season of waiting, uh, would you just pray for me uh, that I would be personally devoted towards Christ, that I would walk with him deeply and I would share the gospel here in Kansas City because ministry doesn't start when I leave, it's here today. So if you could join with me in doing that, it would mean a lot. I'm so grateful uh, for Lenexa Baptist. It's been so special to me to be able to be plugged in here the last couple years as I've been waiting. Um, it's really a blessing um, to meet you guys and to just have the, the, the ability to partner with you guys in the work of the gospel. So um, yeah, I'm so grateful and thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you, Scott. Yeah. What I, what I love about this is you get to know this young man. He's a man of character. He's a man of integrity. He's a high-level leader. He could do anything. The world's in front of him. He could go anywhere, succeed in probably any field in which he desired. And yet, guess what he's decided to do? To give his life in service to Christ. This is success. This is the example we need to set up before our young men and women about what it means to follow Christ. And so, Scott, we're grateful for your example, how you're challenging us as you go. And we're grateful we get a chance to partner with you. Um, We've been studying Philippians. Um, We've got a small group. And uh, I love what Paul says there about the Philippians. I thank my God every time I remember you. And all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. And uh, as we pray for you, we pray with joy in our hearts. Because we know that you're partnering together with the body of Christ 
in the work of making Christ known in every place around this world. Uh, we have a chance also this morning to, as Scripture says in, in Acts 13, as, as the Holy Spirit set apart uh, Saul and Barnabas for the work of, uh, of missions, they laid hands on them. And it's a good reminder, though, that the church doesn't call people to missions. God calls people to missions. God has called Scott, what we do is we affirm that call and we let the world know he's not going out there on his own, that there's a body of believers who've seen his heart, seen his integrity, and we're with him. Uh, in fact, we got a certificate we're going to give to Scott. This is the third or fourth times we've handed it to him. We keep taking it back from him and then handed it to him again. Uh, but we want that as a, just to be a visible reminder in his life that he's not alone. That on those days when it gets difficult, when uh, maybe he's not seen the fruit of his labors as he would like to see it, he'll look to that and be reminded of a group of believers here over in Lenexa, Kansas that are holding the rope, that, that we're with him, we're behind you, we're not going to let you down, and we're going to be right there. So uh, church family, this is our opportunity to say to Scott, we're with him. So we're going to pray over him. I'm going to put my hand on him. You symbolically, you put your hand on him, and we'll together unite and commission him out to serve the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for Scott. I thank you, number one, most importantly, that he knows you. I thank you that when he heard the gospel message proclaimed into his life, uh, he said yes, and he followed you. Laid down his life, denied himself, took up his cross, he followed you. He didn't know exactly what that meant, but later on down the road, you tapped him on the shoulder and you said, there's more I want you to do. And I'm so grateful that he had the heart of an Isaiah in light of who he is and what you've done to say, here am I, send me. And we're grateful that we get to partner with him as a church. And so, God, I pray that you would help us to encourage him day by day. Even as he waits now, God, I pray that we'd encourage him in his walk with you. God, we pray for the opening up of these visas. God, we know that every government is under your control. We know that you're sovereign in all of these circumstances. And so we plead with you to open that door. They'd receive those visas and they'd be able to go. They'd be able to go soon. We pray for those to, to whom Scott will minister. We pray that you'd begin to work in their hearts now, that when he arrives, the soil will already be fertile for the gospel seeds to be planted. We look forward to what, what you're going to do, and we know in the church there's only one who gets the glory. His name is Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Rejoice with Scott this morning. Thank you, Scott. So grateful. Well, Revelation 14, you know, the book of Revelation, we're, we're seeing a couple of themes that continue to pop up. Um, number one, we're reminded of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We're reminded of the victory that Christ has won for us, that, that just as God promised in Genesis 3, that the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, this one man, will crush the serpent's head. And so we see it finally come to fruition. God ties up all the loose ends, and the victory is won through, through Christ who comes and defeats the enemy. So we're hopeful, we're, we're joyful as we look to Christ and what he's done for us and what he will do in the future. But on the other hand, as we look into the, God, uh, the, the book of Revelation, we're reminded of God's judgment. We're, we're reminded of God's wrath, and to some extent, it should burden our hearts for the lost. Um, so on one hand, we're joyful, and we're grateful, reminded of the hope we have in Christ. But on the other hand, we're burdened. And we're seeing that throughout Revelation. But boy, in this passage, in Revelation 14, we see both of those themes right there side by side. 
And so let me pray for us, then we'll just work our way through this text. Father, we, we thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. But God, I pray this morning as we learn more about who you are and what you're going to do, that this knowledge of the future and what you have planned, God, would not cause us to grow bigger heads or um, just to gain knowledge. But God, I pray that we'd be transformed, that our hearts would be broken for those that do not know you, and we would have uh, the same spirit in which we rejoice in Scott John's, a willingness to go wherever you'd lead. Uh, If that means across the street or around the world, I pray that you would give us a greater heart for the gospel, for the lost, and uh, the love for our our neighbors that that compels us to tell them about the good news of Jesus Christ. So change us this morning by means of your word. Attune our hearts toward yours. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, look with me, Revelation 14, uh, beginning right there in verse 1. It says, Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. So we see the Lamb here. It's interesting Uh, Christ is presented as the Lamb in the book of Revelation more than any other book in the Word of God. Uh, It's kind of interesting. It's almost as if God wants this world to know, this world that has rejected Him. This is who you're rejecting. You're rejecting the perfect Lamb of God who willingly and sacrificially came to die in your place for your sins. He's the perfect Lamb of God who died for you. This is who you've rejected. And then we see not only is he the Lamb, but we see here in verse 1 that he's standing where? He's standing on Mount Zion. It's a picture of this Christ, this perfect Lamb of God who died, has now become the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It reminded me immediately of Psalm chapter 2, this messianic psalm. And you'll remember in that psalm, the psalm that says, Why do the nations rage? The kings devise a vain thing. Kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and his anointed, saying, Let us cast their fetters apart. Let's cast away their cords from us. So the the picture there of the world is the world says we don't want God. We don't want Christ. We don't want anybody telling us what to do. And what is the reaction of God in heaven? He who sits in the heavens does what? He laughs. That's funny. See, just because you don't want him to be king doesn't mean he's not king. And then Jesus says here, God says he'll speak to them in his anger and he'll terrify them in his fury saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon where? Upon Zion, my holy mountain. So it doesn't really matter what the world thinks or wants. Jesus is king. That the lamb who came and died is the king who reigns. That's the way you can be when you're God. You say, you come this way in the way in which my justice and my wrath is appeased and paid for. So Christ is the lamb who reigns. And then you see he's pictured there with the 144,000. They're standing with them. We've talked about this in Revelation. These are these Jewish evangelists who've been faithful to the point of death. They're pictured here in heaven. Why are they pictured in heaven? Because they've died. These 144,000, they've been martyred for their faith in the midst of the tribulation. They've been faithful that they didn't as John tells us in this book that they didn't love their lives even when faced with death. They were more interested in being faithful to Christ than saving their life. And here they are pictured in heaven, and it says they have the name of Christ and his Father on their foreheads. You remember Jesus said to the church at Philadelphia, he who overcomes, 
I will write on him the name of my God. When you write your name on something, what are you declaring? You're declaring ownership, aren't you? It's mine. Here are these 144,000 that have been faithful, even to the point of death, and God has eternally marked them as his. They're his, 144,000. And what else do they do? They worship. Look at verses two and three. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. Can you imagine this? I mean, I love a choir and orchestra, but can you imagine a 144,000 person choir and orchestra? With the sound of God, like the sound of many waters, I remember standing there at uh, uh, Victoria Falls in Zambia, Africa, and being overwhelmed. You can't even get that close to it, but the overwhelming sound that it made. Can you imagine the voice of God in a 144,000-person choir singing? I don't think our earthly bodies can handle it. We're going to need glorified bodies to handle it. And there they are worshiping. And it says they sang a new song. A new song, meaning a, a fresh experience of God that qualifies them to sing. Uh, these martyred believers get a chance to learn and sing a song that no one else can learn is what it says. A song that no one else, quite frankly, is qualified to sing. That's what it means to have a new song in our hearts. The psalmist says in Psalm 40 that you lifted me out of the miry clay and you put a new song in my heart. A new song in our hearts means that we don't, don't just worship Christ for what he's done in the past, but we worship Christ for what he's presently doing in our lives. And as Christ brings us through hardship and difficulties, through hurt and pain, we, we learn a new song that's unique to us, that, that we're qualified to sing that no one else can sing. That those of you who have been through experiences like the loss of a child, Few things more hurtful than losing a child. Listen, you're qualified to sing a song that no one else is qualified to sing. That that hardship becomes a new song, a fresh song of praise. I think all of us would be willing to admit today that if we've walked with God for any length of time, we've all had hardships or hard things happen in our life that quite frankly wouldn't, we wouldn't wish on our worst enemy, but they have brought into our hearts a fresh song of praise unto our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what it means to have a new song. You know what I'm realizing too in scripture? The people of God, it doesn't matter where you find them, all the great heroes of the faith, they're always singing. And that's what God's people do. They just sing. Listen, this morning, if you have Christ in your heart and you are not compelled to sing, or at least as I would call it, make a joyful noise, then something isn't right. You know, this is what we're going to sing in heaven. We're going to sing praises to God. And I'm afraid that for some of you, Christ is going to say, that's the first time I've ever heard you sing. If you won't sing with all your heart today, what makes you think you're going to sing with all your heart then? You waiting on a glorified voice? We sing. Um... And by the way, those of you that are really good at singing, you, it's your duty to sing really loud to drown out the voices of those who can't. <laughs> so you sing. And 
And this is not a place where there's any judgment. We sing. Uh, you, you ever been at a place of worship with a group of people and it doesn't really matter the, how many people are there, it's the heart of the people singing. Uh, when I was in uh, Uganda, uh, me and my son Wyatt got to hear a group of pastors being trained. They were from Darfur and they had come down to receive theological training so that they go, could go back and, and be church planters and pastors. And many of them had lost wives and children for their faith in Christ and they gathered in that room and they sang. I'm going to tell you, it was a new song that I was not qualified to sing. And it, I secretly recorded it because I, did, I just pulled out my phone and said, I got to get a, a sound bite of this because I don't ever want to forget this. I don't think we ever really get closer to heaven than when God's people Unite with one voice to sing. So here we see these 144,000, they sing. Verse 4, it says, These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. So the picture here of God's people in heaven, these are the people that God delights in. They're, they're marked by God. We, we are marked by by God, by the power of the Holy Spirit. They sing. They have a song in their hearts, a new song. They're undefiled here. It says they've kept themselves pure. That in the midst of the tribulation, an incredibly immoral time, the tribulation is a place of rampant immorality. There's a group of 144,000 men who have kept themselves pure unto God. Is our day immoral? You bet it is. All kinds of sexual immorality that is rampant in our day. But here is what we must remember. That just because this world is incredibly immoral doesn't mean that we fold or give up. We don't take our moral standard from the world. We get our moral standard from God and his word. And we are called to live lives of purity and holiness. Lives that that lend credibility to the gospel message that we proclaim. Uh, these 144,000, they've been purchased. Why do they live this way? Because their lives are not their own. They've been bought, as Peter says, with the precious, not uh, been bought with silver or gold, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, spotless and unblemished, the blood of Christ. You and I, through faith in Jesus Christ, we've been purchased. Our lives are not our own. We live holy lives unto God. That's what the gospel of Jesus Christ does. It changes us. It takes, as Paul talks about those in Corinth who are incredibly immoral, it takes the unrighteous and the wicked and it makes them righteous. It takes the unclean and makes them clean. It takes those who are corrupted by the world and sets them apart as holy unto God. And I just want to take this moment to declare, if you're a man, we're calling a lot of men to discipleship here at Lenexa Baptist Church. One of my greatest prayers is that every man will have a discipleship group where they are being challenged to walk in their faith. If you get a part of a discipleship group, I can guarantee you here at Lenexa Baptist Church, we're going to hold the bar high. And I'm not going to give any excuses for doing so. We will extend grace where grace is needed. 
but today is our day to shine. You know, we are in a bad day. But I praise God that God placed us right here because there's never been a greater opportunity to shine the light of Jesus Christ. The light always shines the brightest in the midst of darkness. It's a dark day. We're going to shine the light of Christ. We're going to live lives that are holy and above reproach. We're going to call men to a high standard so that, as Paul said to the Corinthians, we would not disqualify ourselves from this great gospel ministry that God has given to us. I'm fed up and tired of seeing young ministers fall because of immorality and sin. So we're going to hold the bar high. God calls us to be. These 144,000, they remind us that just because the world is tough, we don't back down. It says in verse 5, no lie was found in their mouth. They're blameless. Men of integrity, their word is their bond. Do you see the picture here of what God's doing? Before, God is getting ready to pronounce judgment on a fallen world. But before he does, he says, these are the guys that I delight in. This is what I'm looking for. These are the army rangers who stormed the beaches of Normandy. These are the guys I need. Men that won't back down. That'll live at a higher plane so that they can be effective for this gospel ministry. Then look at verses 6 and 7. And I saw another angel flying in midheaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God. And we give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of waters. And so we see a series of angels here that are going to move us closer to the finality of God's judgment and wrath. It begins with an invitation, and it's going to end with the blood rising to the bridles of the horses. And so each angel is going to bring us a message that moves us progressively closer to the end and the finality of God's judgment. This first angel, you'll note here, brings an invitation or more than that, probably a warning to fear God and worship him. Fear God and worship him. You ever seen somebody walking in blatant sin or disobedience? They know what God has called them to do, and yet they mock God. They walk in blatant sin and disobedience. You ever want to just shake that person and say, do you not fear God? You're going to stand before him someday. The thief on the cross said, this man has done, and we're getting what we justly deserve. This man's done nothing wrong. And he said to the other, do you not fear God? You're about to meet him. This angel cries out to a lost world that's mocked God and rejected Christ and said, fear him. You better stop dead in your tracks because his judgment is coming. And then in verse 8, another angel, a second one followed, saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. So this second angel brings condemnation. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. Babylon describes Antichrist's worldwide empire. So the world will be brought underneath one person in the midst of tribulation. This world empire is known as Babylon. You've heard me say this. It's a, I feel like I'm being a bit redundant. But in, in Genesis 9 and 10, you remember that all the world comes up underneath after the flood underneath one person named Nimrod. And he builds this edifice to God uh, by which he will worship himself. And it's called what? The Tower of Babylon. That's the beginning of idolatrous and false religion. That's the beginning, that's the origin of Babylon. And you'll remember God, an act of mercy, strikes them with different tongues. That's where nations arise. And false religion, idolatrous religion, spreads out over all the earth. But as we're seeing in Revelation, one day it's all going to come back up underneath one person. And there will be Babylon. And what this angel is declaring is that 
Babylon, its destination, its condemnation is so certain that we can talk about it in the past tense. The angels declaring this kingdom, and in fact, every other kingdom of this world is coming down. Be careful about giving full allegiance to any kingdom other than the kingdom of God. Because every other kingdom will be crushed by the stone of Christ, as we saw in Daniel and as we're seeing in Revelation. There's only one kingdom that's eternal. And so fallen, fallen is Babylon. It's all coming down. And then we see in verse uh, 10, then another angel... A third one followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he'll be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast in the image and whoever receives the, the mark of his name. This is the most clear uh, picture we get in all of God's word on hell. That those who have rejected Christ, those who have worshipped the Antichrist, the beast, only one future and only one destination awaits them. The wrath of God in a place of ceaseless torment. It says here that they will drink the undiluted, the unmixed cup of God's wrath. Meaning at this point, when God pours out his wrath, it will be undiluted with compassion. It'll be undiluted with grace. It'll be undiluted with mercy. Why? Because the time of grace is over. And those who have rejected Christ will face the full weight of God's undiluted wrath. Not only will they face the undiluted wrath of God, they will experience a place of ceaseless torment. Verse 11, it says, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. Those words should cause us to shudder forever and ever. Listen, you and I are eternal beings. That's part of being made in the image of God. And the scripture does not teach or give any evidence for any form of annihilation. It's not biblical. The idea that you die and there's nothing, you can make that up on your own if you want to, but it's not in the Bible. The Bible is incredibly clear that if a person rejects Christ to the point of death, they will have an eternal conscious recognition of the wrath of God. One day, all the known universe will glorify God. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, but all creation is going to glorify. You'll either glorify God eternally in your salvation or you will glorify God eternally in your condemnation. And there's only one way, listen to me this morning, there's only one way to avoid the judgment and the wrath of God, and it is Jesus Christ. There is no plan B. Christ went to the cross. He absorbed the full rate of God's wrath. He was the only one qualified to die. He's the only one who is God. He's the only one who is sinless. He's the only one who is perfect. And he absorbed the full weight of God's wrath on that cross for your sin and mine so that you and I wouldn't have to face God's wrath. But if you reject Christ, this lamb who came and died, 
then you will bear the weight of that wrath on your own in a place of ceaseless torment. Now, the option is eternity with Christ forever in heaven or the option is eternity separated from Christ forever in hell. But it's not like you can say, I want to go to heaven, but I don't want to go through Jesus. He's the only way. Then you see in verse 12, it says, here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith is in Jesus. How do we know that a person is truly Christ? How do we know that we know? Well, they have a testimony. They have a testimony about how they came to faith in Christ. Just as Scott was telling us earlier, when he was a freshman in college, somebody told him about the good news of Jesus Christ and he made a choice to turn from his sin and turn towards Christ and God began that work in him. So you have a testimony. But how do we know that we know? It's not just about a testimony, but what, how do we know that we know? Well, eventually, if a person truly knows Christ, guess what? They'll begin to look like Christ. Um, how do my boys know that they're my boys? Well, they can produce a birth certificate, but that could potentially be forged. How do they know that they know that they're my children? Well, unfortunately for them, they begin to look and act more like me. That's a bad deal, but that's the truth because they're mine. But then you have to ask, but how do I know that I know that I know that I know that I'm Christ? The ultimate mark of God's people is perseverance. They stay true to Christ to the very end. That they might wander a little bit over here, but guess what God does? He always brings them back. Because those that are Christ's are his, and no one can snatch them out of his hand. Isn't that good news today? And so the perseverance of the saints here is the mark of God's people, the true mark of God's people, the perseverance of the saints, those who keep the commands of God. And then we see in verse 13, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit, so that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. He, he says here, blessed are the dead. Now that's an odd statement, isn't it? Happy are the dead. How can we say that? Because we live in a world where everybody's constantly trying to avoid death. And the scripture, the scripture says, boy, blessed are the dead. Those are the happy folks. How can we say that? How in the world can John, under the inspiration of Christ, say that? He tells us why. He says, because death for the true believer is rest. Death is when we go home. Death is when we pull up the tent pegs of this earthly world and we go home. The battle is over and we rest from our labor. Isn't that good news? Now, if, if death is rest, what does that imply you're doing today? You're working. You know, Paul said, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, if I'm to go on living in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor. You may retire vocationally, but you never stop working for Jesus. You're just in retirement, you're just freed up to work for him in a new way. And so death is a blessing for the believer because they get to rest. I don't know about you, but I get tired sometimes of laboring with my own sin. I get tired of swimming upstream against a current of this world that's always trying to drag me down. I get tired of laboring in this gospel work. The good news of Jesus Christ is one day I get to rest. But the second reason it's a blessing is because our deeds follow us. Now, I want to be careful here. He doesn't see our, say our deeds precede us. Your deeds can't save you. 
There's only one way to salvation, that's through faith in Jesus Christ. But the scripture makes clear that if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you will face a judgment. It's called the Bema judgment. We'll talk about that after the rapture. We're, ju- we're taken up and we face the Bema judgment where we're not judged on the basis of our sin because our sin is covered by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But our works are judged. That God takes all of our works, the things that we've done, and all the things that we did for our own glory and for our own selves are burnt up. They're wood, hay, and straw, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. And only the things that we did unto the glory of God pass through. And we don't know the exact nature of this, but somehow we're rewarded. And we hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. This is a reminder. Listen, if you're here today and you're laboring for Christ and sacrificing for Christ, remember Payday is coming. You may not see much here, but I guarantee you, God didn't miss it. And he saw it. And one day you'll be rewarded. That's why death is a blessing. We labored and we've sacrificed in service to Christ. It's a reminder that those missionaries who died on the mission, David Livingston, who died barely seeing anybody come to faith in Christ, just giving his life away. He ended his life with nothing. But today, oh, it's not nothing. Today, he is with Christ. There's a mansion in heaven. I was sharing with my son Wyatt the other day. He's uh, helping ref. A lot of our students are helping with upward basketball and helping. And he's up here a lot uh, doing that. And I said, boy, wouldn't it be nice if you got paid to do that? That'd be good. You know, you get a little money on this deal. And and, uh, he said, yeah, but I enjoy it. He loves doing it. And and, uh, I said, but you know what the good news is? One day you will get paid. All that you've done for service to Christ, the sacrifices and labor will be rewarded by faith in Christ. And, and Wyatt said, well, if that's the case, Tommy Morgan's going to live in a mansion, gated community, because that guy's volunteering up here all the time. And I thought, well, that's pretty good. He, you know, that's a good one day we're rewarded. That's how we can say happy and blessed are the dead. We get to rest and we receive an eternal reward. Then look at verse 14. We got to motor through Buckle in. Then I, then I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And sitting on the cloud was one like the Son of Man, holding a gold, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. So this is an anticipation. What we're going to see here is an anticipation of the return of Christ that we're going to look at more fully. So I'm going to give you just, we're going to skim over this because we're going to see it more specifically played out in Revelation 19. And then in verse 15, it says, And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. This is interesting when it says the harvest of the earth is ripe. That word ripe, there's a couple of different words for ripe in the New Testament in the Greek. This word means dry. It means overly ripe. It means you've waited too long. It's a reminder that God has been excessively patient in bestowing and pouring out his wrath. That as Peter says, God is not slow about the promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, desiring that none should perish. God today is patient, calling in all who will trust in Jesus Christ as his personal Lord and Savior. And then we get a summary statement in verse 16. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. So that's kind of a summary in verses 17 through 20. We get more specific. Look, at, look with me there. And, and another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. 
And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Here we have a a symbolic picture of what we see more plainly described in Revelation 19, where where all those, what what will happen is that that all those who have survived the the bulls, the the seals, the trumpets of God's wrath will be gathered uh, on a plain outside the city. Uh, We know that city is Jerusalem and gathered outside that city on a plain called Megiddo. You know what's interesting about that plain? It's approximately 200 miles in length. And God's word is perfect. And all those remaining who have rejected Christ will be gathered using a sharp sickle. this, This sharp sickle is different than the sickle that's mentioned earlier. This is like a paring knife. It means it gets real specific. The picture here is that when God brings his judgment, no one escapes. No one escapes. And when you would press out grapes, you would gather them, cast them into a stone cylinder, and you would press them. You'd step on them. And you'd pull up your robe, and you would crush those grapes, and your robe would get covered in the juice of those grapes. Right here is Christ, we'll see in Revelation 19, comes with the angels of heaven and the church to pour out his judgment. It will be a bloody battle. And the blood will rise to the level of the horse's bridle. The book of Revelation is a book of great hope. It brings us hope. We're we're reminded of the victory that is ours through faith in Jesus Christ, that the wrong will fail and the right will prevail with, with peace on earth, good will towards men, that the serpent will be crushed by the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, just as God said at the very beginning in Genesis 3. I don't know about you, but we sit sometimes, we watch the news, and we grow weary, saying, Lord, why won't you respond to such evil and immorality that exists in our world, why won't you answer? You know, when you think about Christ in his crucifixion, he was led to that cross. You think the humiliation that he experienced. He was beaten. He was spat upon. He was mocked. They put the crown of thorns and the purple robe on him, and they hit him. Tell us if you're a Messiah who hit you. And you remember in every instance, Jesus never said a word. He never answered. While being reviled, he didn't revile and return. He never answered. Do you know what Revelation reminds us? It reminds us that one day he will answer. He didn't answer back then. But he answers here. And when he answers, He brings the wrath of God with him. So revelation on the one hand gives us hope, but on the other hand, revelation, folks, it should turn our stomachs. If you read this, it's it's why so many people, they want to soften it. But if you read this and you don't recoil a bit, you don't understand it because all of us right now in our lives probably have somebody that doesn't know Christ. We probably all have a neighbor, a coworker, a friend, a relative that doesn't know Jesus. And the fact of the matter is, if we believe this to be true, as I do with all my heart, then we know that if that person does not ever trust in Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, this will be their eternal destination. And that knowledge is what drives us to boldness in our daily lives to tell people about Christ. It's why 
Scott wants to go to Australia because he knows there's students over there. How will they hear unless somebody is sent is what Paul tells us in Romans. How will they call upon him in whom they've not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Guess who God's preachers are? It's us. Folks, if we really believe this, then shame on us for biting our tongues and not telling anybody about the good news of Jesus Christ. I mean, how hurtful could you possibly be to have the answer of eternal life and then to turn your back on somebody knowing that if they don't trust in Christ, they will experience a place of ceaseless torment. Boy, this is what drove every great missionary movement of the church was the confident knowledge that God would bring salvation to those who heard, but to those who rejected and didn't hear, there was only judgment. Now, I want you to know if you're here today and maybe you slipped into this room watching online or reached Church DeSoto down the hall in the venue service and you do not know Christ, we, we plead with you today. We beg you to turn to Christ. And my primary, listen, We do not want to scare you into heaven. Because if somebody can scare you into heaven, somebody can try to scare you out. We don't primarily come to Christ because we're fearful of hell. We come to Christ because we fall in love with this one who died in our place. Not so that we could just have eternal life there, but so that we could have real life here. And my encouragement to you would be to look to Jesus. So many people, they dismiss Christ. They turn away from this stuff, and they've never even read it. That's why I tell so many people, read your Bibles. If you don't know Christ today and you're wondering about Christ, read your Bible. Don't take my word for it. Read. Read Matthew. Read Mark. Read Luke. Fall in love with Jesus You know, there's a missionary who was serving overseas, and he was handing out Bibles one day, and this guy uh, uh, approached him and said, I'd like to buy one of your Bibles. And the missionary said, why do you want to buy a Bible? I'm handing them out. Why do you want to buy one? He said, well, I'm going to be honest with you because the pages of that Bible are perfect for rolling cigarettes, and that's why I want to use it. And uh, the missionary said, well, here's, here's the deal. I'll make a deal with you. I'll give you a Bible as long as you promise to read it before you smoke it. And uh, the guy said, sure, I'll take that deal. Took the Bible, went on his way. Sometime later, the missionary went back, and he found that same man on a street corner passing out Bibles. And he went up to him, and he said, what in the world happened to you? He said, I'll tell you what happened. I smoked Matthew. I smoked Mark. I smoked Luke. And I got to John. And I found out how much God really loves me. And I fell in love with Jesus. Some of you today, listen to me. Hell is real. Judgment is coming. But my primary call to you today is fall in love with Jesus as we sing. Do we got a hymn? Y'all got time this morning? How about this one? Turn your eyes on Jesus. Pastor Bill, I think he knows this one. We're just going to sing the chorus. Let me just give you the verses. I love these verses. Oh, oh soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. 
Some of you are right there today. You feel like life is hopeless. You're about to throw in the towel. You, you, you don't know where else to turn. I'm telling you, there's light for a look at the Savior. And life more abundant and free. His word shall not fail you, he promised. Believe in him and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying. His perfect salvation to tell. Through death into life everlasting. He passed and we will follow him there. Over us sin no more hath dominion. For more than conquers we are. Stand together, we're going to sing this chorus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus Look full in His wonderful face And the things of earth will grow strangely dim In the light of His glory and grace Father, we thank you so much for your word that speaks so plainly to us about who you are and who we are and what you demand of us. God, I pray again, if there's somebody here watching online that doesn't know you, I pray that they would see the depth of their sin. But beyond this, I pray, most importantly, they would see the wonderful love of Christ who died on a cross for their sins so that today, through no act of their own, apart from believing in Jesus, they can be saved. The Bible is clear. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Pray that they would call out to you today and know your salvation. For those of us that do know you, may our hearts be burdened to a greater extent today. Give us boldness to go and tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name.